folks, if you like the Michael and Oz podcast, you're in luck because if you haven't heard, and I'm sure you've heard by now, but if you haven't heard, there is a Michael and Us Patreon page. It's patreon.com slash Michael and Us. But let me tell you folks what's on the Patreon page right now. We talked about the Al Gore classic An Inconvenient Truth. We talked about Jerry Springer's only feature film, Ringmaster. We talked about, and, and boy, this one almost killed us, the New Age uh, hokum documentary, What the Bleep Do We Know? And we recently talked about the David Lynch classic, Lost Highway. You can also find uh, some some bonus content on there outside of our regular episodes, uh, some interviews that I do uh, for my day job at Jacobin. We have a recent interview with Avi Lewis, who's running as an NDP candidate on the West Coast in the current federal election. And we're going to have one soon with the British writer Richard Seymour uh, about Tony Blair and the uh, British media crack up around the withdrawal from Afghanistan. So all kinds of stuff available at patreon.com slash Michael and us. I hope that sold you if Will's used car salesman shtick at the beginning uh, didn't already. Well, folks, let's watch this drive. Welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Luke Savage. Uh, and I gotta say, I'm feeling a little bit flustered because I'd seen it in my peripheral vision on social media earlier today, but I only just played the promo for the new Eric Clapton song right before I joined you here in the Gore Lieberman studios. And uh, at first, uh, you know, for the first five or six seconds, I just thought, oh, Eric Clapton's released a new single that's part of his kind of, you know, shitty, easy listening latter career. But no, uh, people in the video like like silhouettes of people holding signs that say liberty and i realized that the song's refrain this has got to stop uh i think it's referring to masks and lockdowns folks well yeah like as you say the song isn't all that good but the video is excellent <laughs> it's like not since michael jackson's thriller has the art form been taken to such a limit well you know you, you do have to separate the artist from the art uh, although at least in the case of eric clapton one thing you can say about him is that you know this is the only problematic thing he's ever seen Said. And, you know, it's very disappointing the first time Eric Clapton has, uh, has expressed reactionary political opinions. I mean, I in the past have complained that certain people of his generation, like Paul McCartney, for example, are just so milquetoast old and cloying and boring and all their all their edges have been sandpapered off and now here comes this guy who's who's rocking it political he's who's telling you what he really thinks giving you some some unvarnished truth telling the sheeple to wake up uh, while we're talking about reactionary celebrities uh, I've really been enjoying Frank Stallone's Instagram presence lately. You know, he's a man with his with his finger on the pulse of MAGA. He's very upset about the American withdrawal from <laughs> Afghanistan, and he's been posting like several times a day about it on Instagram. These very uh, uh, not entirely coherent screeds that he writes. What I love about his posts is they always have a picture of him. Like, usually just a headshot or like a shot of him like sitting on a stool looking like Frank Sinatra or of him giving a thumbs up sign. And then the caption will be like, we need to dig in and try to undo what this president, if you want to call him that, has done. We should regroup our military and do a blitz on these Taliban cowards with A-10 warthogs and wipe them off the face of the earth at real Donald Trump, at Donald Trump 2024, at Fox News at Newsmax. That doesn't sound very funny as I say it now, but what's really funny is that the picture is a headshot of Frank Stallone giving a big thumbs up sign in front of the Budweiser logo. <laughs> <laughs> and and he's, he's essentially proposing the plot of the Jerry Lewis film, Which Way to the Front? Like, let's get a bunch of rich people to get together and invade Afghanistan together and do what the president won't do. What what I like <laughs> is, is the move of tagging specific people people and like news networks <laughs> just because you know he's obviously the first he's pioneering this idea you know and also because he offered a specific set of strategic and uh tactical directives there he was like make sure you use the a10 warthog 
dog. Yeah, it's like, you know, the architect Frank Gehry, where like his whole method is he'll take a sheet of paper and he'll just like scribble some shitty drawing on it, just a bunch of lines like sticking out and he doesn't even think about the mechanics of it. And he just hands it over to his assistants and is like, here, go go build this. That's what Frank Stallone is doing for warfare. <laughs> I, I really do love the thing where you tag these big accounts like in the hope <laughs> that they're going to do something. It recalls a time uh, Louise Mensch, you know, the former Tory MP in Britain who became sort of a, a leading Russiagate specialist, shall we say. Um, there was that time where she was like sitting on a runway with her phone out and uh, she saw just, I think it was just like, a Russian plane or something. And then she started like tweeting pictures of it and just like tagging the CIA and the FBI. And I love the idea that Louise Mensch thought that the FBI's Twitter feed or something, you know, as opposed to just being like public relations and a place where they put press releases is like a place where, I don't know, the director of the FBI is like sitting on a throne in a big like dome shaped room (laughs) with just like the world's biggest tweet deck open and is just seeing that and is like, folks, take us to DEFCON 4. We need to investigate this Russian plane on the runway at JFK immediately. Well, before we get to the movie this week, I want to announce that this was the week when I think I finally began to to get 9-11 trutherism. I, f- I finally became uh, uh, sympathetic to it. And in fact, I think, I think in a way, I even kind of want to join the movement. And it, it was all thanks to Mr. Spike Lee. Spike Lee has a new documentary that's being released through HBO. I forget what it's called, but the thesis of it is that New York is the greatest city in the world. It's a six-part documentary where he interviews all sorts of celebrities from Jon Stewart to Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez to uh, this person and that person and this person and that person, all about how New York's strong, baby. We can survive anything. It, it spans from 9-11 to COVID. That's the time frame that it covers. Not Not sold on the premise, I have to say. I saw the trailer and it looked like one of the worst things he's ever done. Just just awful. Uh, and I thought, man, this guy's really lost the plot. But then earlier this week, the first critics who saw it reported that uh, there's a 30 minute or there was a 30 minute segment in it about a 9-11 truth. And he interviewed this apparently notorious 9-11 conspiracy theorist who was like full on loose change stuff, you know, like building seven uh, jet fuel can't melt steel beams, all that stuff. And Spike Lee himself was interviewed. And I think the New York Times where he said, yeah, I've still got questions about the official story. It was going to be like 30 minutes of just uninterrupted 9-11 truth in a Spike Lee documentary on HBO. Someone please send us the footage so that we can so we can do a whole episode (laughs) on it. I was so thrilled for this because after seeing that trailer, I thought Spike is so boring now. He's just an old, rich boomer lib. He's got nothing left to say, but he apparently still has that little spark of madness in him. And I was excited to see that. There are some big posters of Spike Lee around downtown Toronto because he's part of some kind of ad campaign for an extremely expensive type of ballpoint pen or something. And, you know, the ads are kind of suggesting the pen is like Excalibur, but for Spike Lee. Like if you can, you know, pull it from its sheath or whatever, then you're going to write, do the right thing. I mean, his stock is very high these days, so he's cashing in. Um, Well, that Bitcoin ad was a real tour de force. The Bitcoin ad was incredible. It was actually very hard to watch because, yeah, he was in that Bitcoin ad and doing all the Spike Lee aesthetics. He was doing the moving sidewalk thing, all the visual stuff you see from his movies. And it was him saying that, you know, old money, you look at old money, it has the faces of old white people on it. The revolution is not going to happen with this old white money. It's going to happen through Bitcoin. Old money is not going to pick us up. It pushes us down, exploits, systematically oppresses. But new money, new money is positive, inclusive, fluid, strong, culturally rich. Bitcoin is going to be emancipatory and people people of all colors are going to use it. And seeing that was so dispiriting, <laughs> so depressing, seeing the director of Do the Right Thing marshalling this kind of social justice language for Bitcoin. So I was pretty sour on him for a while, but then I I heard this 9/11 truth stuff and I I was I was coming back in, but then Slate ran this article this week the title of which was Spike Lee's new documentary gives a notorious 9-11 conspiracy theorist his biggest platform ever. And the subhead was 
HBO needs to fix this before it's too late. (laughs) HBO must hold Spike Lee accountable. And I don't subscribe to the loose change view of uh, what happened on 9-11. But I love that the sub... First of all, I just love, like this calling for censorship from slate for this for this documentary being like hbo H- mom needs to step in and stop well this, this. is i mean th- this is such a you ubi- we've talked about this before this is such a ubiquitous sentiment in the current moment it's sort of the default reaction that a lot of people have to all kinds of things and it's sort of to call in the mods like we need mods for everything we need the tech platforms to get rid of the fake news you know, Joe Biden at one point, I don't know if they're still doing this. He was talking about uh, appointing a truth czar to deal with, you know, QAnon <laughs> and stuff like that, which definitely sounds it. like I'll the, do it. Definitely sounds like the kind of thing that that is, is not going to be like steroids for QAnon. But, you know, I don't know. This this Spike Lee uh, example is obviously a, a pretty trivial case of it. But I do think it's emblematic of something that you see in a lot of places as a kind of, a, you know, hair trigger reaction to things. And it's it's not always a constructive one. I also like that that subhead said that they need to fix it before it's too late. Like you see that and you think too too late, too late for what? For people to lose faith in their institutions, <laughs> right, right. If, if people see this, they're no longer gonna—they're no longer gonna trust the the other the, the otherwise perfectly functioning uh, institutions of the American state and the media. I mean, if yeah, if they if they think that George W. Bush might have done something wrong, they may not support his war. <laughs> You know, and that could that would be a big problem because they've got weapons of mass destruction over there. (laughs) (laughs) And and we cannot let the smoking gun come in the form of a mushroom cloud, folks. So anyway, Spike Lee went into the editing room and he removed all of that footage, presumably with a gun to his head. And I just want to say to you blue check fuckers out there who made this happen, to you assholes who were given the privilege of seeing this footage and now it has become the new The Day the Clown Cried, you know, we'll never be able to see it. I just want to say, I hope you're happy that we're just going to get a really shit boring New York documentary now. Well, we're going to we're just going to have to do an episode on it and we're going to have to speculate like what that what that 30 (laughs) minutes could have been and what it could have given us before we get to the movie will there was something uh that you did on twitter this week that i thought was very funny and and worth discussing because uh it was so lethally accurate it's the kind of thing that you know makes you the the toast of uh film twitter and uh you know never somebody who's subject to uh angry and irrational pylons or anything like that but you had a, a series of tweets that was like film twitter archetypes the first in an ongoing series and you had a few tweets in this vein. These were so good. Uh, and they they reminded me of uh, the time I sat down and did this for Canadian pundits. And I was hoping to use that uh, for something on the show. Uh, and then I realized that the problem with Canadian pundits is there's only about like, I don't know, generously 20 or 30 of them. So when you do, <laughs> when you do an archetype, it's pretty obvious who you're talking about. <laughs> you can't get away with it, uh, which uh, film Twitter archetypes, you know, it's big enough that uh, when you do one like Guardians of the Discourse or New Beverly Gen Xers or Clint Eastwood stands, you know, those are very precise, but they could also apply to quite a lot of people. I did, though, run up against the problem that you were talking about. I wanted to do one like Paddington stands <laughs> and it would be, you know, believe that the revolution will come through kindness or, you know, big Elizabeth Warren heads and uh but i realized oh i would just be talking about indie wire critic david ehrlich so uh, i I can't do that it's just a direct hit (laughs) but yeah i mean you may be wondering what is a guardian of the discourse well you know it's an editor at a major website or a columnist for a well-respected publication or a a temporarily embarrassed columnist for a (laughs) well-respected publication so somebody who who might once have been and might still be again and you know the, the these people are the guardians of the discourse they keep they keep things in line someone who's been dining out on like a single byline at vanity fair for just a, a few years too long these are the people who think that twitter has just been very unfair to chloe zhao uh frankly the people the people who want to stop spike lee from putting 9-11 truth in his fucking movie the most common archetype is the promising young critic. These are the people who, they have issues with Marvel, but they think it's great that a lot of people will finally see themselves represented on screen. Perhaps 
in some cases, for the first time. Uh, and, and they liked the movie, but they're waiting to hear the perspective of other more diverse groups before rending a, a definitive judgment. They need, you know, it's always important to hold space, you know, for others. <laughs> the, the, the one I liked the best was actually the one you just called Corporate Account, and it just says, Happy Birthday to the Queen at Ava. <laughs> although although I, the friendly amendment I'd make is it's not only corporate accounts that do that kind of thing. Yeah. Also, I like how every single one of these archetypes, there's a type of political pundit that pretty much matches it exactly. (laughs) I'm sure. (laughs) Well, we've got another stinker for you this week. It's it's, it's the uh, 1962 Ivan's Childhood by the hack Andrei Tarkovsky. Задержали одного. Младший лейтенант приказал доставить к вам. Ползал в воде у самого берега. Зачем не говорит? На вопросы не отвечает. Говорить мол, могу только с самим командиром. Я Бондарев. He is, of course, seriously, folks, <laughs> arguably the greatest filmmaker that the Soviet Union ever produced. <laughs> Um, yeah, in, ca- in and- case it wasn't clear, since Will <laughs> segued from hardcore irony into earnestness there uh, very quickly, Tarkovsky is one of our personal favorites. Uh, actually, and it's it's a, a topical anecdote for the podcast. I think the first Tarkovsky film either of us saw was one we saw together. We went to see Stalker in 2016. And uh, it was on the night of the Michigan primary. And it was an absolutely magical night because we went into this movie, I mean, knowing it was going to be good. But I mean, if you've never seen Stalker and you don't know anything about Tarkovsky, you're not prepared for the kind of experience that you're going to have. And especially seeing it on a giant screen, uh, it was absolutely incredible. We'll definitely do an episode on it at some point in the future. Uh, Personally, I'm still thinking about what it means and and what it means in this particular moment, which is something I'm keen to write about once I've had more time to think about that. I want to tell a personal anecdote of my own about Tarkovsky, because I often claim to want movies that have ambiguity and are not didactic and don't spoon feed the audience. But I remember early in my relationship with my current partner, uh, the TIFF Lightbox in Toronto was doing a, a complete Tarkovsky retrospective. And I think both you and I saw quite a bit of that. And I remember the two of us going to see The Mirror one night. Oh. And and I got incredibly crabby during it. And uh, we went for dinner after. And it's like, this was 2017. I was a younger and more callow man. And and I was saying, I, I, I just don't understand it. I, I don't even want to talk about it. And she kind of talked me down from that being like, you seem to be just shutting the movie out because you didn't immediately understand it well it's a it's a challenging film you know one should one should ultimately see that one several times at least i mean it's the most kind of uh, cryptic and non-linear and dreamlike of all of Tarkovsky's films, which is saying something if you've if you've seen any of them. So yes, I, I have to shamefacedly say that that's an impulse that I sometimes have to fight against uh, when I see the cinema of Tarkovsky. But I wanted to finish the story from before because do you remember coming out of Stalker in 2016? And I mean, I, I don't know how you felt, but walking down the street after that, I was like disassociating. It was so incredible. Oh, yeah. He's like Lynch where the real world seems sort of tainted by like the dream world that he's created, you know? Right. And then at a certain point, I snapped back into consciousness and I remembered, oh shit, the Michigan primaries tonight. That was the thing that I was thinking, you know, had been thinking about for, for a week. And I thought, oh, you know, Bernie's probably going to lose. And then as we're sitting in the bar, Bernie was projected to win. It was a huge upset. And so it was just the perfect, it's obviously got nothing to do with Tarkovsky, but it was just the uh, the cherry on top for a, for a pretty special night. I remember that night very fondly too. You know, Tarkovsky in recent years, at least before COVID ruined everything, he was a very popular filmmaker at like the local repertory cinemas. Whenever the TIFF lightbox in town would play Tarkovsky movies, they would always be fully packed, which was interesting because when I first learned about Tarkovsky, I think Solaris was the first one I ever heard of, you know, like 20 years ago, I probably heard about it for the first time. And in the media, it was always positioned as like, huh, well, if you thought 2001 A Space Odyssey was really slow, wait till you see this one. You know, if you thought that movie was really cryptic, 
music. Like you'd read like the Entertainment Weekly review of it and it would say that. But the audience is so often more accepting of things like this than the media wants to give them credit for or, you know, the, the guardians of our culture want to give them credit for. Well, there's never a bad time to talk about Tarkovsky and I wanted to uh, discuss him on the podcast for a long time. It would have been natural to begin by talking about Solaris or Stalker or a film like that. But because it was August and because five days ago was the anniversary of the beginning of the Battle of Stalingrad, I thought it might be a good week to talk about Ivan's Childhood, which was Tarkovsky's first film. I believe he was in his 20s when he made it. Uh, It came out in 1962. It was shot in beautiful and crisp black and white. It's a film that Tarkovsky himself uh, discusses as very formative. He said in an article written in the 1960s uh, that in this film, he set out to prove to himself that he had what it took to be a filmmaker. And he says in his book, uh, Sculpting in Time, the completion of Ivan's childhood marked the end of one cycle of my life and of a process that I saw as a kind of self-determination. So Ivan's childhood, so Ivan's childhood can be seen as as part of a tradition of Soviet films about the horrors of Operation Barbarossa and the Nazi invasion, which began in 1941. Tarkovsky uh, himself was around the same age as as the main character, uh, Ivan, is in the movie uh, at the time these events occurred. There's a long tradition of uh, Russian films and Soviet films uh, engaging with uh, specifically the Battle of Stalingrad, but more broadly, the Nazi invasion and its aftermath. Uh, In the 1940s and 50s, there was a wave of these kind of patriotic films, fairly heavy-handed, but I think in some cases uh, probably a lot of fun. Uh, The Fall of Berlin, which came out in 1950, is probably the most famous uh, of those. Will, have you ever seen that? No, I have not, but I've seen some of the next wave of films. Ivan's Childhood is part of this particular period that came after of, I wouldn't call them revisionist war films, but there was this brief period when filmmakers were allowed to make films that were about the human cost of war, were very much about ordinary soldiers and civilians coping with war's effects. Um, the Cranes Are Flying and Ballad of a Soldier are two great films from that movement. And of course, uh, later, Sergei Bondarchuk, uh, who directed uh, Fate of Man, which was another film uh, kind of in this vein, later directed the lushest adaptation of War and Peace uh, ever, which, you know, of course, even though it's based on the uh, the novel by Tolstoy, you know, is also in many ways kind of obliquely about the glory of Russia in, in defeating the barbarism of the Nazis, at least, at least kind of indirectly. That's a film we'll have to uh, we'll have to take on at some point it's an incredible work of art and uh, one that i have a lot to to say about ivan's childhood of course is not strictly about the battle of stalingrad but it being the anniversary of the beginning of stalingrad uh, that was on the 23rd of august i did just want to read a little bit uh this is via the progressive international which did a post for the anniversary recently i read this partly because it's interesting but also because i think it's useful to historically conceptualize and recall uh some of the things that were going on in 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 the USSR around this time. So on the 23rd of August, 1942, the 6th Army of the German Wehrmacht, the most highly decorated unit in the Nazi army and among its most barbaric, arrived at the River Volga and commenced its assault on Stalingrad. The Battle of Stalingrad would be among the most brutal of the Eastern Front, one of the most consequential battlegrounds of the Second World War. In the first 48 hours of fighting, the Luftwaffe dropped around 1,000 tons of bombs on the city. The German army took 40,000 Soviet civilians as enslaved workers. It's a fight for annihilation, Hitler told the generals of the Wehrmacht in 1941. We are not waging a war to maintain our enemy. The policy was one of mass starvation, enslavement, and extermination, the total destruction of communism and its proponents. But the Germans quickly realized they had misjudged their rivals. We have totally underestimated the strength of the Bolsheviks, Joseph Goebbels, the Nazi minister of propaganda, wrote in his diary on 16 September 1941, just months after the launch of Operation Barbarossa, the German invasion of the USSR. It was not just the USSR's technological sophistication, but the total mobilization of its society that stunned the invading forces. In Stalingrad, citizens volunteered to dig trenches. Industrial workers replaced fallen tank crews. The 1077th Anti-Aircraft Regiment, a group of tenacious fighting women, as the Germans called them, were said to have damaged or destroyed 83 tanks and 15 other vehicles, destroyed or dispersed over three army battalions, and shot down 14 planes at the start of the siege. 
The next five months, one week, and three days would be consumed by some of the most brutal fighting in the history of warfare. Some two million people perished in a conflict that advanced street by street, building by building, room by room, sewer by sewer. By the end of the battle, the German Sixth Army was decimated. As Hitler rerouted units from other parts of Europe to fortify the Eastern Front, it became clear that the tables had turned. U.S. General Douglas MacArthur hailed the Soviet victory as, quote, the greatest military achievement in all history. The Battle of Stalingrad was instrumental in turning the tide of the war. Together with the Battle of Kursk, it was one of the last major battles on the Eastern Front, and it paved the way for the long march to Berlin, a journey that saw the Red Army liberate Auschwitz. Soviet journalist Vasily Grossman, who witnessed the siege firsthand, later wrote, The Stalingrad epic is a page written with fire and blood and stamped with the staunchness of our troops, the courage of our workers, their unbounded patriotism. So uh, the sentiments, particularly there at the end, uh, is the one that you find throughout a lot of these films, I think less so in Ivan's childhood, and probably even less so in uh, probably the most famous film in this vein, which is the one from the 1980s directed by Elim Klimov. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Come and see. Have you ever seen that one, Will? No, it's on my watch list. I'm very ashamed to have not seen that one. Well, it's a brilliant film, although it's uh, it's deeply disturbing. I think easily the most disturbing war film I've ever seen. And another film uh, which portrays war very dramatically through the eyes of a child. Uh, anyway, anyway, let's get into this discussion of uh, Ivan's childhood proper. Well, the film is set, as you indicated, during the Second World War. The protagonist, Ivan, is a 12-year-old boy whose family was killed by the invading Germans and who is now on his own. And the narrative drifts back and forth between Ivan's happy pre-war childhood and the cold reality of the present day. In the present, he is captured by a troop of Russian soldiers, but more or less insists that he is a soldier too. He wants to fight with them, he wants to avenge the deaths of his families. And because he is small and thin, there are missions that he is uniquely suited for. He ingratiates himself with two officers, uh, who, by the way, are both attracted to a nurse named Masha. They want to send Ivan to military school. He wants to continue performing intelligence operations. Uh, I won't spoil the ending just yet, although I'm sure we'll get to it. I'll just say that, as with any Tarkovsky film, the simple plot synopsis doesn't do justice to the experience of watching it. This is probably Tarkovsky's most straightforward and accessible film, although it's not at all a linear piece of storytelling, and in fact it can sometimes be a little tricky to distinguish the present-day scenes from the dreams and the flashbacks. It's trite to say, but it's a film of great visual poetry. You know, he uses very expressive lighting, all those uh, wonderful shots of the light penetrating cracks in the wall, and you know, he's very attentive to details in the rural landscape. Uh, and there are also many formally daring scenes, like that dream sequence towards the end where, how would you describe it? He renders the image like a photo negative. Right. Ivan and a young girl who is presumably his deceased sister are riding in a cart that's being pulled along a road, and the cart is full of apples. And in the background, Tarkovsky uses this kind of photo negative technique that Will mentioned to create something that looks like a thunderstorm. You can see kind of white silhouettes of trees against the darkness and what seems to be rain beating down. Uh, the dream sequences in the film, I believe there are four beginning with the, the, the very first scene in the movie, are really key to understanding it. Um, and you know, it's, it's interesting, this is my second time seeing Ivan's Childhood, and my takeaway the first time was, you know, it is, uh, as you said, the most straightforward of Tarkovsky's films. I think that's true, uh, but my memory of it, I think, was a little uh, imperfect, because what I remembered was that it's pretty much a straightforward war movie with a handful of kind of surrealist techniques used every so often, but but basically it's, it's kind of a, a straight war drama. Watching it again, I don't think that that analysis of it uh, is really correct. I think you can see operating at a deep level uh, in this film, particularly given the, the relative straightforwardness and simplicity of the plot. You can see operating poetic symbolism and the kind of non-linear linkages, kind of visual discordance and other things like that, other techniques that you find later in Tarkovsky and that he's especially known for. The scene in the apple cart is a very good example. We'll come back to that, but I, I think it's worth talking about the, the opening scene in the movie because it's probably the most straightforward one to interpret. Um, it shows Ivan in the uncomplicated bliss of youth. Um, he's just kind of wandering around on a beach, and the beach is a place we come back to a number of times in the film. 
a number of the dream sequences occur here. Ivan is chasing the sound of a cuckoo. Um, and in, in Sculpting in Time, Tarkovsky's book, he says that one of his, his own earliest memories was uh, the sound of a cuckoo clock. I think the cuckoo clock is also supposed to represent time in some way. Ivan eventually sees his mother who smiles at him. He runs up to her. And then this reverie is kind of interrupted as he awakes rather violently in an abandoned mill that's on a devastated battlefield somewhere in the USSR. Um, so so what's striking about this dream sequence compared to the others uh, is that apart from the end of it, when Ivan awakes uh, so violently, it's completely uncorrupted. It's innocent and it's pure. Every single other dream sequence incorporates similar elements. You see the beach, you see images of animals, uh, you see members of Ivan's family, his mother and his sister. I don't think his father, who's also been killed, his father who was a guard on the border. That's the only character detail we have on him. He does not appear. But in all of these other dream sequences, the images of youthful bliss are kind of made to coexist visually with horror and trauma and things like that. The, uh, the apple cart scene that we mentioned being, being an example. Tarkovsky is, with the possible exception of Eisenstein, the most internationally renowned Soviet filmmaker. He was not necessarily the favorite filmmaker of the Soviet head offices. I just want to read a little bit from Sculpting in Time that hints somewhat at his relationship with the film authorities and also articulates something of his project with this film. He wrote, Working on Ivan's childhood, we encountered protests from the film authorities every time we tried to replace narrative causality with poetic articulations. Whenever the dramatic structure showed the slightest sign of something new, of treating the rationale of everyday life relatively freely, it was met with cries of protest and incomprehension. These mostly cited the audience. They had to have a plot that unfolded without a break. They were not capable of watching a screen if the film did not have a strong storyline. The contrasts in our film, cuts from dreams to reality, or conversely, from the last scene in the crypt to Victory Day in Berlin, seemed to be inadmissible. I was delighted to learn that the audience felt differently. And he goes on to say, There are some aspects of human life that can only be faithfully represented through poetry. This is the kind of thing that you often hear from filmmakers who are working in countries with powerful censorship boards. I was reminded of a quote that Jean-Luc Godard said in the early 2000s. He said, We were for Mao, but when we saw the films he was making, they were bad. So we understood that there was necessarily something wrong with what he was saying. That's a kind of playful and kind of silly statement of the kind that Jean-Luc Godard often makes. But I kind of think there may be some sort of kernel of truth to it. Tarkovsky's cinema, based on everything I've read by him, like I, I know you've read his published diaries as well. Half those diaries are him complaining about his, his battles with the film authorities. It seems to me that Tarkovsky is great in spite of the system. He's great because he's not bound to ideology. He he is an artist. Does that make sense? Well, I suppose so. I mean, I think that it's an anti-war film in a big way. I mean, it's a film about Tarkovsky's hope that, uh, you know, something like this will never happen again. You know, he once spoke about how, you know, he chose childhood uh, as the film's subject because childhood is the ultimate counterpoint to war. It's a film about how innocence is indispensable and, and how war destroys it. But I think it also is a film which, which you know, is, is meant in some ways uh, to celebrate the Soviet victory, but in a, in a complicated way. I mean, the final shots of, of the movie or the final kind of scenes uh, in Berlin when you see, you know, these, these big celebrations and the fall of the Third Reich. The, the film, which is actually, there's very little violence in this movie. Um, and then all of a sudden, right at the end, you have these absolutely horrific images of kind of charred corpses and dead children in Berlin. There's footage which may actually be real footage of the Goebbels family lying dead on the ground. And those are followed by these horrific images of Nazi uh, interrogation and torture chambers and things like that. So I, I think that Tarkovsky here is really doing two things. I think he's channeling the mission of the film. And I think also in quite a sincere way, he's he's channeling the feeling of kind of accomplishment that people in the Soviet Union had for this great victory over, 
over the Nazis. In capitalist Hollywood, there seems to be this suspicion of anything that doesn't move the plot along. You know, we're trained to believe that narrative is the most important thing and anything extraneous and poetic is self-indulgence. And I think there's something ideological about that. It's the same kind of thinking that tells us we're only good if we're productive. So I think that um, Hollywood falls well within uh, Godard's principle uh, in the same way that something must have been wrong with Mao if his cinema was bad. Something is also wrong about America if its cinema is bad. I mean, if I was to come up with a list of of the five worst things about capitalist Hollywood, that one wouldn't be on there, particularly if we're talking about, you know, the 1950s. But well, we disagree, sir. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I did want to talk a little more about the reception. I mean, it was received, uh, it met mixed reviews in continental Europe. Uh, The Italian communist press, for example, didn't like the movie uh, for the same reasons, actually, that it seems like some bureaucrats and uh, creative types in the Soviet Union were suspicious of it as well. The sort of lyrical and poetic elements were seen to run afoul of, you know, aspects of the kinds of things that were often expected of socialist realism and things like that. Explicit depictions of class consciousness and things like that. But Jean-Paul Sartre, uh, who was living in Italy at the time, wrote this very forceful response to an Italian magazine, of a magazine that is of the Italian Communist Party. The magazine was called La Unita, um, butchering the pronunciation, obviously. But Sartre wrote this letter to the editor. It's very long, so I'm not going to read all of it. Um, I've just got two uh, segments here. And Sartre defends the film thus. He says, In truth, such distrustful judgments abandoned to our middle classes without real justification, a profoundly Russian and revolutionary film, which expresses the sensibility of the young Soviet generations in a typical way. As for me, I saw it in Moscow, first in a private screening and then in public in the midst of youth. I understood what it represented to those 20-year-old heirs to revolution, who did not doubt it for a moment and intended to continue it with pride. Let me assure you that in their approval, there was nothing that could be defined as a reaction of the petit bourgeois. That's near the beginning, and then uh, I want to read this bit from the conclusion of uh, Sartre's letter to the editor. He says, We have often known evil, but never the radical evil in the midst of good, at the moment where it enters into conflict with good itself. It is this that hits us here. Naturally, no Soviet can be said to be responsible for Ivan's death. Uh, Spoiler. Uh, The only culprits are the Nazis. But the problem is not there. Where does evil come from when it pierces good with its innumerable needle pricks? It reveals the tragic reality of man and of historical progress. And where could that be better said than in the USSR, the only country where the word progress makes a sense? It is not the golden lion that will go on to be the true reward for Tarkovsky, but the polemical interest raised by the film with those who are struggling together for liberation of man against war. So a very forceful defense uh, of the movie from Sartre there on, uh, on leftist grounds explicitly. So returning to the plot, I mean, frankly, we've we've kind of alluded to most of it. Um, there is a, a, a B story about these two officers uh, and their attraction uh, to this young nurse, Masha. I have to say uh, this part of the film was a little more cryptic to me. I'm not quite sure where it fits in, except as sort of a statement about, you know, a late a latter stage of youth um, and it kind of coexisting with war. So there are a few more of these dream sequences, I think the most evocative of which is, uh, well, actually, I don't, I don't even know if I can rank them. There's some material for a, for a nice hacky YouTube video that would get like 2 million views or something. It's like all the dream sequences in Tarkovsky ranked from best to worst. Uh, no, it would be all the dream sequences explained. That's, yeah, that's right. Yeah. But I, I should say, I should have said my favorite of the dream sequences, I think, is this one on the apple cart. There's something so beautiful and disturbing about it at the same time. I think it's a it's a remarkable showcase of Tarkovsky's nonlinear techniques, the way he links together, the way the way for him, the experiences in a person's life uh, are kind of coexisting at all time. They're not staggered like dominoes. Life is not a series of discrete memories. It's a sum total of experiences that are always in conversation with one another. So even if Ivan's youth has been destroyed by the trauma and horror of war, it's still there in some way. And of course, we also see this in the final dream sequence of the film uh, after it's turned out um, you know the, the Soviet officers who are going through the ruined Nazi offices in, in Berlin are going through you know records of captured and missing and executed Soviet operatives and soldiers and of course they find the record for Ivan who's had this horrific death after his uh, capture on their reconnaissance mission uh, and then in the final dream sequence we see Ivan on the beach and uh, he's back on the beach and he's playing with a group of children he's playing with his sister you know they're 
playing hide and seek. And it's a similar sequence in many ways to the very first one in the film. But it includes this image of a dead tree, which is kind of, uh, you know, inexplicably and surreally positioned on the beach. And I mean, Tarkovsky might uh, might scoff uh, at my interpretation of it, uh, or he might just be unwilling to concede it. But it seems to me that the tree is, represents, you know, Ivan's kind of unfulfilled potentiality. Ivan is a life that has blossomed in some ways and, and been able to realize itself, but has also been cut down prematurely. And I, I think that's what the, the dead tree represents. But of course, again, the dead tree is coexisting with this memory or, or dreamscape or whatever it is of, of Ivan playing uh, with his friends before the war. Most movies depict uh, the present day and a flashback and a dream sequence as these very discrete parallel units, whereas that's not how they actually exist in reality. Tarkovsky here does this, I want to say, Proustian thing where these various realities uh, coexist and intermingle. When you remember something, it's often very inflected by your emotional state or layers of accumulated emotional states over the years. And uh, memories can be triggered by your physical surroundings or by objects or smells or the light. Well, and of course, by, by accessing memories in your brain, uh, you're also, I think, often or even perhaps always altering them, at least very slightly. So in a sense, Tarkovsky's belief in a sort of nonlinear depiction of these things mirrors the way memory actually works where you know the past is always in conversation with the present because when you bring it back to mind the present is in a sense intervening in it we are always making our memories accord with what we think our current narrative is aren't we that's right and i think even on the level of you know visual memory or you know memories of sounds and things like that we do alter them when we uh, when we think about them particularly if they're very far back into the past i'm sure you've had the experience i know i have of remembering a piece of music you know a few lines of a song or something that you haven't heard for 15 or 20 years and you can remember it so clearly and then one day you think to yourself you know when you're procrastinating or something I'm just gonna type that song into YouTube I haven't heard it for such a long time and then the song is actually a little bit different or in some cases quite different from what you remembered and so it's coming back to you filtered through the prism of time and then when you're able to hear the real version, you kind of remember it again, the correct way. I, I remember myself as always being a very good guy and uh, any broken friendships or failed relationships I had were their fault. <laughs> There are two other things about the dream sequences I wanted to mention. Um, I found these very powerful, and I can't believe I didn't remember them better from my first viewing of the film. The, the scene where Ivan and his mother are looking down the well, which I guess is the second dream sequence, you know, and they're having this conversation, which is very much like, you know, the kinds of conversations your parents might have with you when you're a kid, or is at any rate very much like how you might have experienced those conversations or, or remembered them at the time or remembered them later. They're looking down the well, and his mother is saying something about how you know you can see a star that's that's resting at the bottom of the well because I guess Ivan is curious about you know the reflection that he's seeing on the water and she explains to him that stars rest during the day and you know it's such a it's such a simple little scene but I found it incredibly powerful I think it captured the experience of childhood with just a wonderfully elegant simplicity um, and the same can be said for I think might be my favorite image in the movie and one which I found uh, incredibly moving I have to say which which was at the end of the apple cart sequence, the storm appears to have disappeared, you know, this kind of photo negative technique disappears and the apple cart is going across the beach and the apples are spilling out and all these horses are eating them. You know, it's a very cryptic image and I'm not sure there's actually anything to decrypt. It just seems to evoke innocence in this incredibly powerful way. Look out for it if you're planning to watch the film. And it's such a strange image in many ways, because of course, you know, apples and horses on the beach, it's kind of an improbable combination. And yet the image was so vivid to me that it almost felt like I was recalling it, like it was a memory that I'd had. And yet at the same time, uh, I guess because of the shots leading up to it, there was something so ominous and tragic about it as well. There's just, there's no filmmaker like Andrei Tarkovsky.
I know there was another film uh, that you wanted to bring up in relation to this, but just to kind of conclude or at least bracket the discussion of Ivan's childhood, I wanted to read a little more from Sculpting in Time because Tarkovsky, in addition to being a great artist, was somebody who I think, unlike a lot of artists, was very open about his own kind of creative process, his thinking, his conception of cinema, things like that, um, which is something that can be said for another one of my favorite filmmakers, Ingmar Bergman, who uh, also wrote a lot about each of his films. Uh, when it comes to nonlinear techniques and kind of uh, poetic linkages, which is very much the device used over and over again in Ivan's childhood, and I think the one we've been talking about, he writes that he finds poetic links, the logic of poetry and cinema, extraordinarily pleasing. They seem to me perfectly appropriate to the potential of cinema as the most truthful and poetic of art forms. Certainly, I am more at home with them than with the traditional theatrical writing, which links images through the linear, rigidly logical development of the plot. That's sort of fussily correct way of linking events usually involves arbitrarily forcing them into a sequence of obedience to some abstract notion of order. And even when this is not so, even when the plot is governed by the characters, one finds that the links which hold it together rest on a facile interpretation of life's complexities. But film material can be joined together in another way, which works above all to lay open the logic of a person's thought. This is the rationale that will dictate the sequence of events and the editing which forms them into a whole. The birth and development of thought are subject to laws of their own and sometimes demand forms of expression which are quite different from the patterns of logical speculation. In my view, poetic reasoning is closer to the laws by which thought develops and thus to life itself than is the logic of traditional drama. And yet it is the methods of classical drama which have been regarded as the only models and which for years have defined the form in which dramatic conflict is expressed. Through poetic connections, feeling is heightened and the spectator is made more active. He becomes a participant in the process of discovering life, unsupported by ready-made deductions from the plot or ineluctable pointers by the author. He has at his disposal only what helps to penetrate the deeper meaning of the complex phenomena represented in front of him. Complexities of thought and poetic visions of the world do not have to be thrust into the framework of the patently obvious. The usual logic, that of linear sequentiality, is uncomfortably like the proof of a geometry theorem. As a method, it is incomparably less fruitful artistically than the possibilities opened up by associative linking, which allows for an affective as well as a rational appraisal. And how wrong it is that the cinema makes so little use of the latter mode, which has so much to offer. It possesses an inner power which is connected within the image and comes across to the audience in the form of feelings inducing tension in direct response to the author's narrative logic. So beautifully said, I know that was kind of a long passage I read, and I would honestly kind of like to keep reading, but that's what I mean when I say Tarkovsky is uh, remarkably lucid about his own process. Now, I, do, I did just want to read one other uh, passage from Tarkovsky. It's not from uh, Sculpting in Time. Uh, it's from an essay that he wrote in a Russian journal in 1962. The English translation of that is from Robert Byrd, a uh, professor of Russian literature at, uh, at UChicago. And I read this because I think it refers to Ivan's childhood, but I think is also a, another statement, a kind of grander statement about Tarkovsky's, uh, you know, wider artistic vision. He's been talking in the essay about, you know, the way that film is often written uh, or, or thought of as a kind of, you know, visualized prose. But he responds, uh, the specific nature of our art must be developed on an emotional basis. We have depended on prose for too long, and this is causing an increasing number of complications. In turn, poetic cinema also has its minuses. As a young art form, it quickly succumbs to pretentiousness. And it is not only the authors of films who want to escape cliches, but also the viewers. At a discussion of Ivan's childhood at the Moscow University Cinema Club, one of the students said, it's good that your horses eat apples, we are sick of oats and hay. Poetry can teach us to communicate a large amount of emotional information with scant means and meager words. The lesson of poetry is also good for film directors in that it forces us to value reserve and calls on us to be ourselves and to listen closely to the world. Poetry of the cinema is not only in the colored glass and funeral beers with enormous flowers, I have in mind the film Man Follows the Sun, but also in a greater concision, greater intensity. I think that one of the main factors in the aesthetic authenticity of film is currently the director's and cinematographer's feeling for texture. Success depends on the director's ability to conceive and find a concrete atmosphere and on the cinematographer's ability to imbibe it. 
The path away from literary narration towards cinematic event is opened by imbibing the atmosphere into the film stock, creating a shot that acts upon the viewer by its contrast or by the unity of its surface. So, you know, he goes on a bit there, but that last comment about the unity of an image's surface, I think, could apply very well to many of the shots in Ivan's childhood, and particularly the dream sequences, which I think are basically all making use of that technique in one way or another. Before we go, I just want to talk briefly about a filmmaker that I recently became acquainted with, another Soviet filmmaker who hailed from Hungary. I found out about him uh, via my other podcast, The Important Cinema Club. His name is Miklos Jancho, and he's one of those filmmakers who is very interested in creating a style of cinema that could inspire revolutionary change. You know, you would hear about that from filmmakers in the mid-20th century. Not so much anymore, I'm afraid. Uh, He's not very well known internationally anymore, although some consider him one of the greatest Hungarian filmmakers who ever lived. And his most famous film was called The Red and the White from 1967. And it felt to me sort of of a piece with the particular era of Soviet war films that Ivan's childhood came out of, but not quite. It was commissioned to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the October Revolution. But it was not the movie that the Soviet governments were hoping to see, because it was set in the aftermath of the Russian Civil War. It's set in 1919, and it mostly follows communist and Tsarist troops who are fighting over scraps of land in the Hungarian countryside. And it's a very cold and alienating film. It's shot in black and white, and he has this very unusual visual strategy that he uses where he essentially unmoors the camera from the action. So the camera is constantly floating from one scene to another. It's in constant motion going from one character to the next uh, to the point where we never we never really develop any sort of relationship with any of the characters on screen. We never become invested in any of the many dramas we see. And there's a lot of very brutal and unpleasant violence, but it's never lingered on and you become sort of deadened to it by the end. There's not a lot of music either, but it's quite a visually beautiful film nevertheless, also shot in very crisp black and white, much more minimalist than a film like Ivan's Childhood. Uh, What he got across was a film that was not celebratory of the Russian Civil War at all. You know, like Tarkovsky, he detested war and wanted to make a film that showed the reality of war. But in this film, it's it's actually quite difficult to distinguish the Tsarists from the communists. Uh, they, they are the titular red and the white, by the way. And it was only released in the Soviet Union in a severely recut version. And even that version was almost immediately banned. It's lingered with me since, so this is all to say that I encourage people to check out Miklos Yan's show, and particularly The Red and the White. Uh, it, it, it's the kind of picture they don't make anymore, folks. And we'll, of course, have to return to Tarkovsky on future episodes. I've thoroughly enjoyed this one, and uh, we're just scratching the surface with Ivan's childhood, so let's do uh, Stalker and Solaris in the near future. Well, I thought we had a little more to say about uh, Tarkovsky and some other thoughts that were brought to mind by uh, our discussion of Ivan's childhood. Uh, it's funny, you know, after right after we stopped recording, uh, I sensed that there was actually a bit of a tension or, or a disagreement between us where you were trying to kind of pluck Tarkovsky uh, from the milieu in which, you know, he made Ivan's childhood and his other films and kind of, um, you know, place him outside of ideology. And I'm not even sure what I think about this now, but my instinct was very much to to resituate him within that uh, milieu. Yeah, and I may be right or wrong, but one thing that I do want to make clear is that I don't want to position Tarkovsky as a dissident filmmaker or even a subversive filmmaker. He's clearly a very Russian filmmaker, and his project involves being a sort of national filmmaker and speaking to a sort of collective mood in the country, and he is of Russia, certainly. American filmmakers have the same problem, too. Um, It's hard to be a great national filmmaker 
within the system. That's true. Although I, I think a lot of America's national filmmakers don't even try to dissent in any kind of way. They're not aesthetic dissidents even. I mean, uh, you know, Steven Spielberg, for example, is now Andre Tarkovsky. Well, I, it's funny you should mention Steven Spielberg because, yeah, Spielberg has very consciously tried to be the American filmmaker. Uh, he wants to be the new John Ford, you know? And by the way, I'm not equating them because I think John Ford's a much greater filmmaker. But, but you know, something that rubs me the wrong way about Spielberg is that he wants to be not just a national filmmaker, but the national filmmaker. He wants to be the one who establishes the parameters of discourse in his cinema. And it, it's funny that Spielberg keeps finding himself attracted to these subjects about great shames in American history, or great shames in world history even, whether it's the Holocaust or slavery or the Vietnam War as it was explored in the post. And his strategy for dealing with these great shames is to show us the brave men and women who righted the system, often people representing great American institutions, um, whether it's whether it's Congress in Lincoln or whether it's yeah, uh, the, the Washington, Wa- Washington Post, Post yeah. you know, and, and ultimately his thesis is, yes, we're capable of terrible things, but but there's nothing wrong with America that we can't fix with what's right with America. Or in, or in Saving Private Ryan, where it's this band of brothers, where it's these just like different archetypes of like different kinds of masculinity. Most of them are sort of flawed in some in some way, except for Tom Hanks, who's like the median American male. And, and the, it's a film about, you know, I, I haven't seen it for five or six years. We should probably watch it before I pronounce too strongly on it. And, you know, obviously it's a it's a film with virtues as well. And, you know, technically brilliant. But, you know, Tom Hanks is just sort of the median American male. And it's like median American uh, Midwesternness or whatever, you know, prevailed against, you know, that that's what that's what's going to get us through. That's the institution that's never going to fail. But to use China as an example, I'll name two prominent Chinese filmmakers. There's a difference between Choi Hark, who early in his career when he was making films in Hong Kong, he was sort of a dissident filmmaker. But in recent years, he's become, uh, I'm afraid, a propagandist in the mainland. He's made films like Taking Tiger Mountain, you know, heroic films about great Chinese military victories. And frankly, it's I found it very tragic to watch his career trajectory. But then there's another wonderful Chinese filmmaker named Jia Zhangke, who has made films like A Touch of Sin, Ashes Pure as White, and, and he takes very seriously his responsibility of depicting China as it is, um, depicting people of lower classes in China, depicting their struggles. But he's not Ai Weiwei, you know what I mean? He, he's simply a great filmmaker who wants to make great films about China as it is. He's not, he's not filming himself smashing uh, <laughs> vases that date from the Ming Dynasty. Right, or he's not uh, doing a photo of his middle finger up at like a picture of Mao. Um, anyway, <laughs> uh, he's, he's a filmmaker who has run into uh, repeatedly run into censorship problems in China. And I don't think he would consider himself a dissident filmmaker. I think he's just a great filmmaker who's trying to make great films about his country. And uh, it, it's hard to do it in the system, you know? Well, to turn back to Tarkovsky for a moment, there was something I forgot to bring up during our discussion. And it's that the star, Nikolai Berlyayev, if I, I think I'm pronouncing that right, uh, he's still alive. He's 75 years old. Um, interestingly, he was married to uh, uh, Natalia Bondarchuk. Uh, they've since divorced, um, who was Sergei Bondarchuk's daughter. And she also appeared in Solaris. Having starred in Ivan's childhood, he also later acted in Andrei Rublev. Um, anyway, today I looked him up and he's a he's an ardent Putinist and uh, <laughs> describes him, he describes himself apparently as a homophobe. Um, so, you know, we, we began the episode uh, talking about Eric Clapton, <laughs> you know, Speaking of, you know, people who've done great things uh, and are a little bit problematic today. But, you know, there's an interesting interview with Berlyayev on the criterion for Ivan's childhood. You know, he did this interview in, I think, 2007 or 2008. And he basically, uh, in part of it, is talking about Tarkovsky. And he's saying, you know, Tarkovsky had this reputation, particularly in continental Europe, for being a bit of a dissident. And he says this was absolutely not true. Tarkovsky was a true patriot. Um, You know, he was uh, he was at my dinner table many times and he would always say, you know, they're never going to drive me out of Russia. I'll be here. You know, we must always try to live and work in Russia, something like that. Now, I think Tarkovsky did end up making uh, Nostalgia and The Sacrifice, his two final films, 
at least partly outside of Russia. I think uh, Nostalgia was partly shot in Italy, if I'm remembering rightly. And I don't really, uh, I mean, I don't really accept this. I mean, obviously, um, Berlyayev is, you know, he's a reactionary today. Clearly, he's a, he's a, he's a Putinist. I have a hard time, uh, you know, I don't, I can't obviously say what Andrei Tarkovsky's politics would be if he uh, lived today. And obviously, as one of my favorite artists, I certainly hope that he wouldn't be a Putinist. But I have to say, I have a hard time imagining Tarkovsky as any kind of Putinist. You know, it's like it's like if MAGA had been formed east of the Danube. It's so about machismo, like there's no subtext. Uh, it's so kind of cloyingly sentimental. It weaponizes all these idioms around tradition and, you know, the nation and stuff, but it does so in the most kind of heavy-handed and sentimental way. I have a hard time uh, believing that Tarkovsky, with all his kind of, uh, his penchant for poetry and deep abstraction, would uh, would really have any interest in that, although, of course, I don't know if he'd be a, a dissident either. But I do think there is a grain of truth in what the star of Ivan's childhood uh, says in this interview, in the sense that I... I do tend towards the idea that Tarkovsky is quintessentially Russian. Now, we can say that, you know, great art transcends the nation or something like that. And I think that's true. When I think of all of my favorite filmmakers, whether it's Bergman or Tarkovsky or Kurosawa or Ozu, all of those, you know, two of them are Japanese. One is Swedish and one is Russian. You know, we could throw a few more in there. Godard, perhaps uh, Antonioni, French and, and Italian, respectively. All of those people made cinema that was very particular to their, you know, national milieu. And yet, you know, their greatest films uh, do manage to transcend the milieus that produce them in some way. I think that's where their, their real power comes from. And I suppose in that sense, you can kind of think about all of them as dissidents, not strictly in a, in a political sense, but as, as artists who are very much the products of particular social and material forces and whose visions were shaped by those things and whose aesthetics were shaped by those things, but who ultimately are giving us something that transcends the provincial constraints that are typically imposed by those kinds of things. I think that's my way of reconciling the view of Tarkovsky that I was expressing or trying to express in the episode and, and I, the one that I think you were trying to express. While we're still here, uh, I want to bring up, you were a wondering off mic if there is such a thing as an American equivalent or an American analog to Tarkovsky. And I think what you're getting at is somebody, a, a filmmaker who is engaged with the national milieu, a, a filmmaker who is sort of consciously an American filmmaker, but who also works within the system. And I'm, I'm having trouble defining what the system exactly is, but I, I think we, I think we know what it is. It's like you know the capitalist mode of film production and um, yeah, li liberalism. I mean, yeah, yeah. Mo movies that have budgets of like over a million dollars, because th certainly there are lots of there are lots of filmmakers working in the underground and the avant-garde who are doing similar experiments with time and with evoking memory on screen that Tarkovsky's doing, but with much smaller resources into a much smaller audience. Audience. Uh, you suggested David Lynch, perhaps, and uh, I suggested maybe Terrence Malick. Malick seems to me kind of the only filmmaker. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm talking on my ass a little bit. Maybe there's another filmmaker, but he seems like one of the only filmmakers right now who's trying to create a style, who's working in studio distributed movies or, or widely distributed movies, who's trying to create a style that is like an alternative to the conventional style and engaging with the country that produced it directly and, and in a way that's of the country, but also critical of the country. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And, you know, I think part of my reaction and my, my desire to situate Tarkovsky within Russia partly just has to do with my revulsion at sort of the, I don't know, the mainstream American portrayal of Russia, you know, as we've had it, you know, in, in the last 25 years to some extent, but especially since 2016. I mean, I think after, you know, the fall of the Soviet Union, there was this idea that, you know, Russia was going to adopt a sort of American style of liberal democracy or something like that. And um, there's the famous Time magazine cover, the Yanks are coming, all that sort of stuff. You know, it's funny, if you watch 1990s Star Trek, this is just a little bit of a digression, but on Star Trek The Next Generation, there is um, a two-parter episode where the Federation 
you know, Jean-Luc Picard, played by Patrick Stewart, has to decide whether it's going to get involved in this Klingon civil war. And the Klingon civil war has to do with this kind of right of uh, succession, who's going to be the new Klingon chancellor. And it's amazing how culture can inflect even, you know, the futurist thinking of a particular decade or era, because in Star Trek, the original series, the Klingons are clearly the Soviet Union. And then in Star Trek, The Undiscovered Country, which is the sixth and final uh, original series movie, that's very much an end of the Cold War film. That's where the Federation and the Klingons negotiate this famous treaty, which is the basis for their alliance. But then Star Trek The Next Generation, which is set, I think, 100 years or so after the original series, the Klingons are very much like kind of Russia in the 90s. You know, they're not really ready. You know, there's a side that the West, who, you know, is the is the United Federation of Planets in the Star Trek universe, can kind of deal with. But even those guys are a little corrupt. You know, Jean-Luc Picard tries to secure the ascension of Gowron, who is the preferable option because the other people are in alliance in a secret alliance with the Romulans uh <laughs> Sorry, I know this is all very digressive, but the Federation ultimately blockades the Klingon border to stop the Romulans sneaking the weapons in with their cloaking devices. And I mean, look, I'm not knocking the show. It's one of my favorite shows. And I'm not saying that that episode is literally about the 1990s. But all I can think of in that conclusion is a kind of Yanks are coming type thing. I mean, it's like we have to go and save these, you know, they're still backwards. We have to go and save them from themselves. And if we're not careful, they're going to join on. They're going to sign up to be in alliance with like Eastern barbarism or something like that. We have to bring them back into the fold. Maybe they're not, maybe the Klingons aren't ready to join NATO yet. Anyway, you know, there is such a, a chauvinistic view of Russia today. Everything I was talking about just now, I mean, you really saw that view go into overdrive and particularly in a liberal milieu as well after 2016. And obviously that has kind of a, a longer history with, you know, the uh, you know anti-communist liberalism of the Cold War, which was, a, was of course, a very formative current in the United States, a structuring ideology in many ways throughout the Cold War in some ways is just a resurrection of that. But I mean, the way that, I mean, do you remember, for example, I think it was that guy that's an editor at Talking Points Memo. I think his name is Josh Marshall. He had a tweet in 2016 or 2015, something like that, when the sort of Trump-Russia stuff was getting going, where he said something like, you know, what has Russia ever given the world except like famines and Fabergé eggs or something yeah. like that? I mean, I mean, it's these, these, this sentiment which you encounter in the wild all the time. And it's, it's astonishing. I mean, the way people talk about Russia, you know, as if there hasn't been this, you know, radical intellectual culture going back hundreds of years, as if this isn't the country that gave us Tarkovsky. Tolstoy is arguably pretty good. I, I've heard good things. Things. I didn't, it, yeah, as if it, was the, it wasn't the country that gave us Tolstoy and Dostoyevsky and Chekhov, um, all of this wonderful poetry and music and art and cinema. I mean, Prokofiev, it goes on and on and on, Tchaikovsky. It's funny, if there weren't this particularly virulent strain of, of Russophobia percolating through the American cultural ecosystem today, I'm not sure I would have quite the same impulse to kind of very militantly insist Tarkovsky belongs to Russia. The conversation might have unfolded a little bit differently, but I think it's it's kind of a, an important uh, position to defend uh, in the wake of all this stuff, which is just so anti-intellectual and, and ignorant as well ignorant of Russian history. And uh, also, it's a view that if you adopt, I mean, you're going to miss out on so much wonderful art, you know, if you if you exclude Russia from the picture. Well, what you fail to understand is that the Russian brain is actually built for corruption. You see the the skull has this dent in it that hits the part of the brain that makes you corrupt. I mean, that's not that's not far from some of the stuff <laughs> that like liberal pundits were tweeting, presumably after a Bloody Mary or two, yeah. you know, circa circa 2016. And Anyway, lots more uh, Tarkovsky ahead on the show, I'm sure. Lots more discussions of Russia. I've got a lot to say about Tolstoy as well. I'm actually hoping to do my own short-run podcast about Tolstoy and War and Peace at some point. Uh, perhaps when I when I have a few of these books out of the way, I can uh, start <laughs> thinking about that. It'll be called Leo and Us. <laughs> Yeah, well, I was thinking about- And then five years later, you're going to find yourself still stuck doing it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I hope so. I hope it's it's a hit. But yeah, probably more likely I'll be stuck later doing it because it'll turn out that there's so much to talk about in relation to war and peace that- you know, it'll be like... Probably a little more than there is Michael Moore. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, you know, episode 45, I won't even be through the first book or something like that. I don't know. Anyway, you mentioned Terrence Malick, and uh, I'm keen to t- 
talk about him. One of my favorite filmmakers. We've we haven't talked about him on the podcast, so look out for that, folks. We'll have that uh, coming up. Anyway, we had a few extraneous thoughts spawned by the movie, so we thought we'd keep the mics rolling and uh, happy to break break the fourth wall a bit and let you in on this episode debrief of the kind that we often do.